Hello, you're listening to Shut Up and Watch This, episode number 41. I'm Dave. I'm Ashley. We're a couple in Austin, Texas, getting to know each other better by uncovering each other's media and pop culture blind spots and sharing the must-see movies and guilty pleasures from our pasts. That means each week, even though we don't do this weekly, <laughs> one of us gets to choose. Like twice a month. Yeah, well, maybe not even that lately. But uh, anyway, back on track. Uh, each time one of us chooses a film or television show or media property. That's my new one. Media property. <laughs> media property from the Marvel Cinematic I'm Universe. Do like no. yeah, YouTube series next or no. something like that. <laughs> uh, each time one of us picks something the other hasn't seen before, mm. and we use it as a vehicle okay. to get to know the the other person. A little bit better. Do you know that we weren't married when we started this podcast? And now we're married. I do know that. Direct causality, the power of cinema, or just a coincidence? Uh, I I don't know. Okay, I don't know. I'm not sure where I'm going What was the movie that did it for you? That like, (laughs) this is the woman that I need to spend the rest of my life with. It was not the review of Naked by Mike Lee. (laughs) (laughs) Episode I can't remember if we were already uh, hitched by then or not, but... Um, no, we were not. No, oh, you went through with it even after uh, seeing into the dark recesses of my mind. I don't think we were even engaged. Well, now then. we get to watch this week's movie and see into the dark recesses of your mind. Yes, it's true. It's recess time. Um, <laughs> so, uh, it's Ashley's turn to pick a movie. It was. But before my turn. we do that, a little bit yeah. of business. Um, if you like this show, please tell your friends about it. Hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast app. Look us up on Facebook, Instagram, drop us an email at shutupwatchthis at gmail.com. And we'd love to hear your thoughts about anything we review. Without further ado, ado. let's talk about the movie that you chose this week. I chose Pan's Labyrinth, or excuse my Spanish accent, El Labyrinth, Labyrinthio del Fauno. Which is Luckily, I can do captions. The Labyrinth of the Fawn. Yes, which is the actual name of the movie. It has nothing to do with Pan. It's not Greek in any... It's not the Greek god Pan. It's just a fawn. Well, I mean, we can we can get into this By in Game a moment, but I find that strange and alarming that the marketing campaign mm. would change somewhat the concept or meaning of the film by making that character be Pan, and well, it's not. you know how everyone was obsessed with the Greek gods and goddesses in the early 2000s? No. They weren't. No I was one, like, what? No, no one no one did that. I don't think so. Although my nephew did dress up like um, uh, Poseidon for... Uh, Thank you for not saying the pale man. Yeah. <laughs> he did. Oh, that would have been cool, though. <laughs> he walked around with eyeballs in his hands. It was no. really terrifying. Scared his uh, little daughter. Daughter? Son. Um, sister. Niece. Sister. Oh, my niece. Yes. Anyway. Niece? Okay. Um, so... Thumbnail, when is this film, who, all that kind of stuff. So this is set um, after the uh, Spanish Revolution when Franco took over. Spanish Civil War. So, and I think roughly, because they they make mention of people landing in Normandy. 1944, they say in the Yeah, so it's during World War II, but in Spain, they were not obsessed with World War II. They were obsessed with... The Franco dictatorship, which had taken over fascism, swept Europe and got Italy and Germany and um, Spain as well. So um, <laughs> uh, we have a young girl and her mother arriving. Ophelia. Ophelia and her mother, Carmen, yes. who's pregnant. 
um, with the captain's baby at a remote um, outpost of uh, Franco's army that is trying to run down the uh, rebels, yeah, the, the guerrilla rebels. rebels that are up in the mountains. Um, so we meet the captain, who is her mother's new um, husband, father to her brother, but she's not. he's not Ophelia's father. Ophelia's father was a tailor who I think it's implied that uh, the captain had him killed <laughs> or put him in a position where he could be killed. Well, he's a, probably knowing <laughs> yeah. the captain, yeah. but we do know that he was the captain's tailor, yeah. and now the captain <laughs> is married to <laughs> To the uh, tailor's Carmen, wife, yeah. yeah. Um, Give me some fantasy elements here. So Ophelia, um, when she arrives, connects with this sort of primal force of... There's like a an insect that turns out to be a fairy that leads her to a a labyrinth where she meets the fawn who tells her she's a princess of the moon and the king of the underworld or something like that. And she's trapped. She's the daughter of the king of the underworld, I think. Mm-hmm. And she's and trapped in the mortal her... world. And they're, the only way that she can return to her to rightful kingdom is to solve three tasks. She has to do three tasks. It's always three. In, in fantasy. At which point I turned to Ashley and said, this is like a really twisted episode of Dora the Explorer. Yeah. <laughs> you have to go down to the pale man, <laughs> eat the plums, and... <laughs> sorry. Have you seen the really gross frog under uh-huh. the tree? <laughs> um, so Can anyway, it's the story of her finishing these three tasks before the full moon Meanwhile, um, the rebels and the captain are fighting against each other. And um, and they have some people on the inside in the household. Yes. Um, the housekeeper, um, Mercedes, Mercedes yeah. is her name, is uh, her brother's one of the gorillas up in the hills. So she's kind of a secret go-between and mole. And mm. she's on the sly bringing them food and supplies and letters and, and intelligence, I yeah. think. And the town doctor um, who is looking after Carmen, Ophelia's mother, um, is also an agent that works for the guerrilla army. Um, so we have kind of dual stories because yeah. you have the external story of the horrors of li- of trying to stay alive and live. Uh, th- he's a complete psychotic madman. Yeah, the captain like, is. Just horrible. He's like fascism in one human form. uh, like he revels in uh torturing and butchering people and uh turning on a dime and just you know being really savage and horrible well i think the the, well the first time we meet him which apparently was a reference to um uh charles dickens i can't remember which one but um she goes to shake his hand to meet her new stepfather. Yeah. And she's got books in one hand, in the in the hand that you usually shake hands with. So she hands him her other hand, and he will not shake it, and he says it's the other hand, which is a reference to it. I was like, what a dick. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then the, ne- the very next scene with him, um, he, uh, you know, essentially beats to death uh, some people that they suspect of being gorillas, um, only to discover that they are not, in fact, they or actually were just uh, poachers yeah. or, you know, hunting, and then hunting rabbits. he blames the guy who brought them to him for not checking their bags first yeah. um, when they discovered that they were actually not gorillas. So let's dial back for a minute because 
I do want to hear like all that. Why did you choose this movie for me to watch yeah. this week? <laughs> why? Pray tell. And also like what, where does this come from in your history? When did you see it and what did it mean to you and all that sort of stuff? So I loved this movie from the very first, you know, thing that I remember watching the end and like my mind being completely like, I mean, like obviously you're crying because it's like, it's like tragic it's a tragedy, but also like sort of weird and wonderful and hopeful. And, you know, regardless of how it's, you feel about how, there's whether like great beauty and great pain in that yeah. ending. Well, and I feel like, you know, spoilers, Ophelia, well, I mean, like, that's the open question is, does she die at the end or does her soul move on to to be the princess of the underworld? We don't I mean, like, that's the question. But like the beauty of how painful her life has been since she arrived in the camp and and whether she's escaping that in the form of a new life or if she's just escaping it in the you know, it's just beautiful and 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 painful and and cruel but also just i don't know it's it's a it's a perfect ending i think you know i don't i love i love everything about the movie i like that you have that question about whether it's real or not or mm-hmm. and then you know juxtaposed with the sort of horrors of franco's spain i um so when i was in high school i was in i helped with a production of a blood wedding by Lorca, yeah, the French poet slash playwriter. Um, Lorca's who, Spanish, isn't he? He's Spanish, yeah. You said French. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I was like, yes, that's what I said. Spanish, Czechoslovakian. <laughs> no, the Spanish, um, and he was actually killed, um, tortured um, to death um, by Franco's men, um, mm-hmm. um, and died in a very terrible way. But um, he wrote these like beautiful, like highly symbolic. Um, you know, not more Greek in, in the sort of, um, sort of drama that it is, that sort of like symbology and, and, you know, like blood wedding is about like a a guy who's about to get married and then his wife runs or his, his bride runs away with someone else and is murdered. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there's characters that are the moon and the, you know, so it's. It's like it's intensely like magical and agricultural and I don't know it's it's beautiful and highly symbolic and it reminded me a lot of this mm-hmm. you know um, so I mean and a lot of that that symbology comes from Catholic Church you know mm-hmm. and, and people who are raised in the Catholic Church sort of have this sort of heightened I think you know and it is kind of an anti-church. Yeah. you know, thing, there is some messaging in that as well, you know, so I don't know, I, I, I really like things that have like strong symbols, you know, it, to me, it's contrast, like really strong contrast between things. And I don't know, that's so it, it, it makes my mind tingle, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. So where were you? And this movie came out in two thousand six. Did you see it when it came out? Where yeah, were you in your the life? How did it impact you? And all I bet course. I saw it at South Lamar. If you oh. want to know specifically wow. where I saw it, you know. Um, and here I was. Uh, I think I must have been in Spokane. 
probably yeah, by then. It was one of those where I was excited to see it. You know, I had seen, um, I don't think I'd seen Kronos, but I had seen uh, Devil's Backbone. Um, and, and I was the opposite. I had seen Kronos yeah. <laughs> before having kids. And yeah. I think I saw it at the Paramount. Yeah. And then around when this came out would have been um, 2000. We would have been uh, relocated to Spokane, Washington yeah. for a couple of years. Well, and it was also sort of the height of those. I mean, and, and they're all friends. Iniratu and um, um, Roma guy. I can't think of his name. Uh, uh, it's gone right now. Yeah. Yeah, anyway. We haven't even mentioned Guillermo del Toro's yeah, name. Yeah, the director yeah. Of this I did film. mention it oh, earlier. Okay. But anyway, the director is Guillermo del Toro. Um, sort of this like new like Mexican cinema coming to the for- uh-huh. forward. And there was like Imama Mama Tambien. There are some other ones. Well, Amores Peros. There was this whole kind of like new wave Mexican cinema thing kind of going on. And, you know, we were, we were there for it. So like, that mm-hmm. was like, we were gonna, we were gonna go see it. And, um, I th- I can't remember. Did Hellboy come out before? No. I forgot to look this up. I don't, um, oh, well maybe, but I don't know. I've never seen Hellboy. I can't Hellboy, remember if so Hellboy came out before, away. but we liked Hellboy as yeah. well, you know? So, um, anyway, we're, I was a fan of, of fledgling fan of Guillermo del Toro and so it was like one of those that I made the I feel like I've still see only it. seen a handful of his movies yeah for whatever well, I showed reason. you Crimson Peak you showed me Crimson Peak which is weird but, but. <laughs> we had one of those things where we stalled out on the devil's backbone probably mm. it was a time of night we started it or, or whatever but we didn't finish it well, and you actually gave me this box set like three years ago, I think, for my birthday. So we're just yeah, now starting to work. Yeah, it's this beautiful Criterion um, three films by Guillermo del Toro set with um, Pan's Labyrinth, um, the ones we just mentioned. Kronos well, and... Kronos and Devil's Backbone. Yeah. And it's beautiful. It's like this... It's like an object created by mm-hmm. Guillermo del Toro. I know it's got... It's like a fold-out box. It's yeah. like a magical thing. I don't know how to describe it. So it just... It kind of started like my obsession. I had like a growing obsession with like Spain and I wanted to go there and I was like making Spanish food and um reading about Gaudi and you mm-hmm. know all this this kind of thing so it um I think shortly after is when I bought I ordered um Spirit of the Beehive at one of the 50% so criteria at some point when we were watching the <laughs> film it reminded me of Spirit of the Beehive mm-hmm. and then when I was reading about it just now I was like oh that's there's a connection that people see between yeah. that there's another film that was actually shot under still under Franco yeah. when he was in power Oh that's right and yeah. they they like kind of hid all this criticism and stuff yeah. in this story of a girl who believes like there's a Frankenstein monster in the, I mean, I can't remember exactly. I've seen it once like 10 years yeah. ago. Well, what but I like it's about very monster like spirit yeah. of the beehive has some of that, like really beautiful, natural Spanish sunlight yeah. going on in it, which is amazing. Um, but it was also about uh, a girl in yeah. terrible circumstances who has that kind of like merging between the horrors of reality and the possibly imagined fantasy world sort yeah. of thing. Yeah. It's also kind of like Labyrinth with the little baby brother. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> it's true. Right? Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting. Like it explores the sort of, you know, I, I'm not one who believes in supernatural things, but I really like fantasy 
a lot. Yeah. But I, I think it's very interesting, the concept of, like, in places where incredible acts of cruelty or violence or, you know, like a war, like a bombing, like torture, like there's this idea that there's um, some sort of energy that gets, Mm -hmm. you know, and like, I don't, like I said, I don't know if I believe in any of that, but I just, I understand it on a visceral level. Like I feel the, like, I think the devil's backbone looks at that where some like acts of genuine cruelty had happened in that space. And there's well, like, that's this, one common yeah. <laughs> interpretation of what a haunting is or mm. what ghosts are would be traces uh, or imprints yeah. of something horrible. Yeah. Not necessarily like a, a being <laughs> with a mind or yeah. an entity, but the, the like footprint or the after. Well, and even that, image, even after if image. there's not like an actual physical force of any sort but just the way that that plays on the human mind and the strength of the human mind to sort of make that make that into something you know meaningful to them you know anyway that's i'm 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 in i'm entranced by that idea i guess you know well just so to kind of like give a summary for a moment (laughs) of my reaction is um I did think it was beautiful and magnificent and amazing. And um, full disclosure is that I saw maybe 45 minutes of it at yeah. some, probably around when it first came out on home DVD. And we're coming to the time when. And so that's. <laughs> a like, lot more of our films will be, you know. Yeah. And, and that, I remember watching it at night after. I had small children then. I would have mm. had uh, Sky would have been an infant, and um, Fiona would have been two, you know. And so viewing time would have been when they finally went down, you know, nine o'clock or whatever it is, depending on the night, and then trying to fit in some of a movie. So there's those were often interrupted. We often didn't make it through. And in this case, I think some of the subject matter stopped me. And I I can't remember if my ex had actually seen the whole thing or mm. has still seen the whole thing i just have this memory of us trying to watch it and then stopping yeah and i don't think it was consciously stopping because it was too painful although Mm. i think some of that might have been there yeah like you talked about how for you a lot of the you know the symbology and the imagery and Mm. all that kind of gives you like a tingly feeling Mm. and i just want to say like i i don't know if i'm more sensitive now than i was when i was you know, before having kids or something, but I would, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that there were some scenes in this movie where I was like in distress, yeah, like that were really painful and hard to watch. And for me, it's not so much the dark fantasy imagery, mm-hmm. even how horrible the pale man thing with the eyeballs in the hands is. Every, everybody like, has nightmares. I think about I that paused guy. it after that to yeah. go get a drink of water or something, and I said, <laughs> "I'm going to have nightmares for the yeah. rest of my life because of this." Well, that's the. F- just it's funny because like the actual amount of time that he's chasing actively chasing her is not very long it's at not all. it's not the chasing it's the idea of, of that creature yeah existing yeah this like 
baby eating, horrible, yeah. withered, disgust. It's really disgusting to look at yeah. in the same yeah. way, in the way like a slug or an awful insect insect yeah. kind of gives you that visceral recoil. Well, he has the the look of illness, sort of the pot belly that pot belly wasted away, wasted away. Yeah, the the terrible slits where the eyes should be. Sort yeah. they're not even in exactly the yeah. right place. Yeah, like, and his 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 fingers don't really look like fingers. They look kind of like yeah. St- starfish suckers or something it's like that yeah how we got off on the tangent about describing him because i was gonna say it wasn't that stuff yeah. i mean that's disturbing yeah but when i say that i was in distress for me it's the stuff in franco's spain yeah it's um Ca- captain vidal mm-hmm. it's the i can't do torture scenes i no. really really hate torture scenes and i couldn't watch a lot of that stuff like even like through my fingers yeah I was, did not want to see. There was one scene where you you put your hand over my eyes, yeah, and like I could still hear what was going yeah. on, and that was almost well. Just that as that bad. actually wasn't a torture. Well, I mean, she was sort of torturing him, but he deserved it. But that's where she cuts. Him yeah, to, um, where Mercedes is. I, I think I had to. Lip. There was one thing where I was like, "What is happening on this? What is yeah. actually? What am I? What are you actually shielding me from?" Yeah, anyway. she had the knife in his mouth, and I just didn't want you to see the part. It's where rare it that I get to a point lip. where I can't look at all, and yeah. It was the it's the it was the idea of um, the savagery and brutality of this this really horrible psychotic yeah. torturer, you know, the captain. I think it's. I mean, I don't think it's gratuitous. I mean, and like if you compare it to something like those scenes with um, the evil guy from Game of Thrones, which were just like gratuitous amounts, I think that he uses it to. You know, well, make specific points about this guy's cruelty. And it doesn't, it actually, like, he does a good job of, like, building up the terror without showing a whole lot. And he, I don't he know. He shows more than I wish he would. Yeah, know, I know because, that. Yeah. <laughs> because the first scene of brutality is pretty early on when he beats to death the guy with the wine bottle. Wine and bottle. And yeah. that's one of those horrible, skull crushing kinds of disgusting yeah. things. <laughs> It's true, yeah. <laughs> there's a there's a whole theme of that in in the last fifteen years of movies. Yeah, I think. it's true. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot of that. Um, but uh, so that aside, well, it still it still is an amazing movie, and I would watch it again tomorrow. Mm-hmm. But I would still probably look at some of those scenes <laughs> through my fingers. But it well, was a really hard place to go. It was. I would say it was a hard watch, and yeah. also. The ending and where it ends up. Yeah. I mean, I haven't said anything about my interpretation of. I hate to. I don't even want to reduce this film to the question of whether it's real or imagined. Yeah, exactly. But I will say that, like, I'm trying to track. I'm trying to think back to last. We watched this last night. The yeah. trajectory of where I was on that question, and I feel like for a good amount of the movie, maybe even most of the movie, maybe two thirds of the movie. I was on board with this is a real dark fantasy world that only she can enter and that is real, you know, yeah. that this is real, you know, this this is a real thing. But at some point, and I don't, I wish I could remember where, I began flip-flopping with my interpretation yeah. and just telling my, and thinking, no, her real circumstances are so painful and horrible that she's created an imaginary world based on the fairy tales that she's, She's reading yeah. all the time. She arrives with, you know, ham armful of six or eight fantasy books, and from that very first moment of arriving there on the estate of the horrible captain, you have um, 
the insect that she immediately calls a fairy, even though it still looks like an insect. (laughs) Um, Cool looking insect. And by the time the movie ended, at least when we watched it last night, um, I was, I was like, no, this is in her head. And so it was very sad and painful because my initial interpretation was this was in a, a place she was escaping because reality was too painful, like almost like a psychotic break or yeah. a hallucination or something like that. And that her death may have flooded her with the, with imagery yeah. of, or that's just the storyteller, the narrative point of view of the film yeah. saying it's as if she went to back to the kingdom of the underworld and, you know, got to reign as the beautiful princess Moana again. Yeah. Um, but now 24 hours later, after having thought about it some more, I also, I don't know, I, th- you pr- I think you just read the same article I did mm. on Wikipedia. It was one of the things I looked at. And I think Guillermo will say, oh, no, it's real. This this fantasy. He, I think he's like, oh, I, tr- I wanted you to, guys to think that yeah. this is real. But I don't even want him to tell me that. No. I still like grappling with it because it's much richer to not know. It's one of the, for me, well, it's like, I don't, I don't think, want I don't, ultimately, it it's doesn't, not about it doesn't that. matter, you know, from the perspective of, no, it you does, know, it doesn't matter. But it I matters mean, to, I, I don't know. Well, except that it matters whether you think she actually has a happy ending and yeah. a release where she's free and safe and at peace in, yeah. a, in a beautiful world where she actually rightfully belongs or whether you, I also, another view I had was, Maybe she's not really the Princess Moana and she's been mistaken for, well, you know, but she's yeah. going to go along. She's told well, she that. she had the, the mark of the moon that's right. and stars she, on her shoulder, so. I don't what know. I'm curious is, Guillermo says, I like how we were on first name basis. <laughs> um, Mr. Del Toro. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> we'll talk to him next time he comes yeah. to Austin. Um, he says that he's planted some stuff throughout the film to kind of push you more on the side yeah. of it's real. And the only thing I can think of are there seem to be clear cases where she couldn't have gotten to places she was without the chalk outline door, Yeah, you know? And it was real chalk that she was given. There's the, Cause he finds it on I, his desk. I think the main, yeah, yeah. The, actually that's a really good one because yeah. that's one of the only times that somebody who's not um, Ophelia interacts with something that's a product yeah. of the imaginary world. And also that's a case where she, so if you haven't seen this in a while, she has a magic piece of chalk that the fawn has given her that allows her to make doors where there aren't any. So mm-hmm. she can draw the outline of a, a door in the wall and and slip through, usually into another yeah. world, right? That's how she gets to the pale man. Mm-hmm. So most of the time when she's doing that, it it takes her into the other world. Yeah. But the one time it doesn't that I can think of is when she uses it to get to her baby brother in the yeah. in the captain's study. And that's the time when she leaves it on the chalk. And to me, that's a case where that seems to be an indication that the magic is real. Yeah. <laughs> but again, we're reducing it to real or not. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It, I mean, to but, me, it doesn't matter. Um, but it's, 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 you know, absent of the ending for Ophelia, the ending for... I don't know. I think it it was like what happens with the gorillas and the, you know, that they they're finally successful in taking out this outpost. 
Um, that and that's the, not the way I thought that was yeah, going to go. Yeah, that the little boy is saved, that her brother, Ophelia's brother, is saved. Um, and that the, that extremely satisfying, just as they're about to kill the captain, they tell him that his son will never know his name. Um, yeah, you because know. he's obsessed with his father. The captain yeah. is obsessed with his father's death, and he has the heirloom of the, the watch that his father... That stopped at That the cracked time. and stopped when, at the time of his father's death, and he's checking it throughout yeah. as if he's waiting for his moment. Yeah. And then he says, I want you to tell my son the time I died or, or something. Yeah. Is that what it is he wants them to do? Yeah. And they're like, your son's never going to know anything. <laughs> we'll never know your name. Well, it's one interesting thing that I think about the captain is like for a while it's it's clear that he's not into Ophelia. He just doesn't. But you think that he might be care about Carmen a little bit, you know, at first. And then Until he, he tells the doctor if any <laughs> If if you have to choose, choose the child over the mother, you know. Yeah. So that to me, I mean like that to me is as cruel as we've seen him be up to that point, that to me like, you know, she's not his enemy. She's the mother of his child. And he feels that way, you know? So not only does he not care about his quote unquote enemies, he doesn't care about the people that he's supposed to. No, he, he was already thinking about his legacy and about how his son would one day idolize him. And, you know, so that, that sort of moment of realization when they're like, he's never going to know your name, you know, he'll never know you existed, you know, that, that sort of like, I was also like throughout the movie, I was also like part of my distress was I was so worried about Mercedes, the housekeeper Mm. the whole time. And I had a false memory. Yeah. I thought that I thought that I remembered her throat getting cut and her dying. No. And, and I had this, um, I was, I had suspected that maybe I stopped after that because I remembered yeah. that. And it's totally a false memory because it didn't happen at all. So now I'm wondering if I hardly saw anything at all. And maybe I, I bet I bailed around the torture thing. Yeah. We probably were like, yeah, no. <laughs> well, to me, she is, I mean, Ophelia, who <clears throat> is the sort of tragic hero of the movie, and then Mercedes, who is the sort of triumphant, you know, motherly figure of this movie she took care of the children she took care of of the soldiers she you know kept the women safe she you know the she's a and then she she, has this like and she escapes from the captain when he's got her in the about the torture she has that knife that she keeps on her at all times but like I, there's the scene where her and the doctor go out to the woods to help the gorillas with like medical care and give them some food and supplies and stuff like that. She's talking to her brother and she says, "I feel like such a coward, you know, working in his house, feeding him, clothing him, you know, doing all these things for him." But I, I can't help but marvel at how brave she is throughout the whole thing because she, I mean, like literally every day is taking her life into her hands, just risking it for the cause and for the people that she cares about. Yeah, and, and her own story about herself is that she took the easy way out yeah. because she's living... But, a, but she's she's a double agent. She's yeah. at risk of dying. I mean, and like the captain has shown no, you know, Bercy at all, ever. So, you know, if... I mean, he shot the doctor nearly as soon as he found out that he was a double agent, you know, despite the fact that his wife was... He doesn't need to have a reason. He's was, a sadist. Yeah. He, he yeah. hurts people because he likes to. Yeah. 
So, I mean, like, he kills them instants before they discover that his son is about to be born. When you know? they're about, when he's about to torture the, the gorilla that they capture, yeah. the wounded gorilla, he's absolutely gleeful and elated yeah. about it. He's yeah. just so thrilled that he gets to do that. Mm-hmm. It's, and he has his own little... Um, he, he really, to me, stands out as one of the most evil characters I've seen in a film. Yeah. That's a big statement, because we've yeah. seen lots and lots of movies. <laughs> but... Well, interestingly, he was played by an actor um, who's more known as being a comedian. Oh, interesting. <laughs> so <laughs> Guillermo wanted really wanted him to play that, and he's played more either romantic lead or like comedy roles. Mm. And people were telling, well, he is dashing. He well, is people an were telling man. Guillermo he's never done anything yeah. like that. You're not going to get that performance out of yeah. him. And Guillermo. My friend Guillermo was like, <laughs> I don't care. He's the one that He's has to one. be this character. Yeah. And um, Ivana Baquero, the the girl, yeah. was 11 years old when they filmed this. And she's amazing. Well, she does have that sort of otherworldly kind of look about her. Actually, I meant to look up what the, what the name Ophelia means. Um, I didn't. Um, but she's this, you know, beautiful sort of olivey light skin and really beautiful dark hair and she looks like a you know a moon princess (laughs) you know um yeah she's and she was so good you know just you know quiet kind of subdued performance you know haunted yeah yeah but the so he wrote, um, he originally conceived of this character being eight or nine years old. Mm-hmm. And when they auditioned people of that age, well, finally she came in and she was a little older than they were thinking. But in her audition scene, she had everybody in tears. Yeah. And he was like, oh my God, she's the best. We have to, I'm going to, he, he we wrote the script somewhat to make it fit a, yeah. a slightly older age. Well, I like, yeah. I mean, there's some several times when her mom is telling her that she's too old for fairy tales and yeah. that she, it's time for her to be There's probably more, more of that than there would have yeah. been had she been eight. Yeah. But they really found the right actress. You know, Another time that sort of the fantasy branches out into reality is the scene where they put the the root under the bed, which isn't that delightful. I love the little baby root. The mewling root. Yes, it's so adorable. It's a mandrake root root, um, that the fawn tells her she has to bathe in milk and feed two drops of blood every day and leave it under her mother's bed and her mother will... Yeah. um, Her mother's like sick in in child labor, in labor. Um, not things are not going well. Yes, yeah, yeah. She's bedridden at that <laughs> yeah. point and struggling, and they don't know if she's going to make it or deliver the baby okay, or if she's going to survive. You know, I don't. But she starts. I don't to get know better. what exactly caused that. If it was like the placenta detaching, or what the deal was that there was, you know, what, I mean, like it's it's a movie, so who who yeah, cares? I don't know. But you know. But the scene where they discover the the mandrake root under the bed, and her, mm. you know her mom gets furious and was like, "You can't play these games." I don't know if there was some sort of anti magic thing going on there, but she was really upset, and she ends up throwing the mandrake root into the fire. And as soon as she does that, that's when you know the her you know labor that I, you know ultimately kills her 
you know, starts. Well, you that know? was another thing where, well, I know, but of course you can all go back to it's Ophelia's magical thinking. Yeah. And so in her head, the consequence of, of yeah. burning the mandrake root is her mom like yeah. goes into labor. Yeah. Like terrible. Like, yeah. Um, but you could just say all they did is throw a mandrake root in the fire. Yeah. Well, Nobody else saw I, it. I kind of wonder, like the consequences, like if the if the actual doctor had not been killed and they didn't just have the the troop, you know, surgeon, yeah. you know, who probably is just practiced in like quick, yeah, you know, field dressing and that sort of thing. Whereas, as opposed to the doctor who has more training and yeah. whether she would have made it or not, you know, although you know things didn't look good anyway but you know i don't feel like her making it was really anybody's priority no. it was not the captain's no. priority yeah the doctor was compassionate but he yeah. also had another thing going on where he was also helping to aid the the gorillas yeah. up in the hills that was his you know priority or so so let's talk about some of the imagery and some of the like the trials that um the tasks that the fawn sets her upon and some of these fantasy characters like yeah. we've touched upon them but it's so really extraordinary first one is a giant scary frog under the fig tree Ugh. where she has to like climb through the that's mud that's another revolting yeah. thing and yeah get slime all over her and try to she has to get him to ingest three rocks so that they, she can retrieve yeah, a key and then that it, he's like, eaten vomits up its entire insides yeah. like so that there's nothing but like flaps of like and, and, like an and empty, insects. Yeah. That was, sorry. That was pretty audience, gross. Uh, yeah. We hope you can see this in your imagination if you haven't seen yeah, the film lately. So that's, um, you know, and I, I and, think. And she, that's where she had to retrieve the key. The, key, the golden key. From the key. goo. The frog yeah. goo. So then the next task, which is tied to the golden key, she goes into the pale man's She uses air. the key to get into the pale man's air? Yeah. No, not no. to get... No, she, she's... Oh, when actually, she's in there, she has to get something? She was, it's an athame. Uh, it's a ceremonial dagger is what that's it right, is. That's yeah. right. Yeah. I couldn't remember what she actually retrieved there. I don't there. know if that's the... It, it, I don't know if that's exactly how you... But the pale man is like completely incapacitated and and immobilized until she starts to eat from the magnificent feast. Yeah. God, from the moment... Well, I love... Like, she walks in and he's sitting at the head of the table, which is like beautifully laid out with a feast. And behind him is this giant fireplace. It's very warm. But this terrifying creature standing with his hands on the table. And in between his hands is a bowl with his two eyes. No, yeah, a plate with his... A plate with his two eyes. Which Ophelia picks up and looks at and then sets back down again. And then turns to do her task, which is... Well, even then, and I don't think I'd seen that part before necessarily. I was like, why are you, do you feel comfortable enough to go up to this thing? How do you know it's not going to suddenly yeah. like, reach and grab you? And she was warned by the fawn not to eat any they, of the feast, They right? mentioned it. It was in the instructions from the fawn, which, but she was looking at the hourglass or something that he gave her mm-hmm. at the time that he was saying that. But it was also included in the instructions <clears throat> in, from the book that she was, the magical book That's that, right. that filled with. So she had heard it a couple times, but, and then the fairies told her not to do it, you know, and she ignored them. Um, the fairies were like gesturing wildly for her yeah. to like keep on going and get out well, of there. What's interesting is why she chose to ignore the fairies because like in the book it says, follow the fairies, they'll show you what to do. But the fairies pointed at the middle door Yeah, and she was like, no, not the middle door. It's the side it was door. was wrong. Yeah. 
Um, so I think that that's maybe why she decided to ignore like the Like they fairies. don't know everything? Yeah, that sort of thing. The fairies aren't always exactly and she, right. And I think, was that the same day that she was put to bed without supper? Because um, I think it was. Oh, so she was hungry. She was hungry. And she's in a room with a magnificent yeah. feast. Yeah. So I think that that was... Th- well, her eating of the of that table is what animates the, the terrible mm. pale man. Yeah. Well, and that, you know, Guillermo del Toro says that's like part of his criticism of the Catholic Church, which is, you know, they have a feast set before them and yet they insist on, you know, devouring children, you mm. know, um, you know, ruining people's lives and that sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, isn't it and horrible then, from the moment you go into the pale man's realm, you see like paintings and mythic mm, imagery and stuff. All the stained of, glass, yeah. Of, of, um, of the pale man devouring children and stuff. <laughs> yeah. And we see him eat two of the fairies. Yeah, in, in pretty gross fashion. Like yeah. there's like tendons and yeah. stuff. It's disturbing, you know. This is a very squicky episode of the show. <laughs> Um, but then that's, um, you know, ultimately she comes back and, you know, she successfully gets the dagger, but, you know, they lost two of the fairies. She woke up the, the pale man. So the fawn comes and he's like, we're done with you. This is, you failed, you know, you know, that sort of thing, you know? So, so so we think we're stuck with, yeah, she's, she's stuck in this world Yeah, and there's no way of escaping it. I th- that's when like like all sorts of terrible stuff happens before we see the fawn again when he comes back and says we'll give death you one of her more mother chance. and all that stuff. It's after and... her brother is born when the fawn yeah. comes back to her and says I have I'll give you one more chance. Bring your brother to the labyrinth. You know, which she's also like she does, and then it's like she feels she's supposed to sacrifice <laughs> her her baby. I mean, brother. well, that's what he says. Yeah. is that the sacrifice of an innocent spilled the blood of an innocent. Yeah, and she says she. And won't. that's the way through the portal back into mm-hmm. the kingdom. Yeah, and she chooses not to, and that's when she's shot by, um, mm-hmm. by the captain who's been chasing after her. You know, after he's. That's the scene I covered your eyes was when he was sewing up his lip. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. So <laughs> I was like, what is he doing? Yeah. So Mer- can... Mercedes, when she was escaping from him, cut okay. his lip. And yeah. so she, he was, there's a scene where he sews it back together. Well, it's not his lip. It's the his cheek. His cheek, she, yeah. She severs his yeah. cheek from yeah. his lips. It's really... So that's that's the scene. But anyway, that's where she snakes in to get her brother is when he's doing that, you know, so. Um, so, you know, what scares me is... Um, Guillermo del Toro says that this story and imagery comes from his notebooks, right? Like he just keeps notebooks where he doodles and writes fragments of stories and elaborate drawings of mythic things and Mm. creatures and that the stuff develops over time. But he's like the kind of that, the visitation of the fawn and all that. Like he used to lucid dream when he was like 12 and this was imagery that he would have like nightly where yeah, they had the fawn stepped where out he would his... like kind of half awaken or or at least have lucid dreams every night where a fawn would enter his room and lead him on adventures yeah or something <laughs> <laughs> it's like that's kind of scary well it's interestingly speaking of of other people who um you know 
find creativeness from their dreams. He says that um, he sat next to Stephen King when he saw the film, and oh, he was squirming during the pale man scene too. Oh, Stephen King. So he was King. like, he was like, this is yay. I, mean, I terrified Stephen King. That's a that's a good sign, right? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think that that um, I think when there's like a ranking of monsters, that the pale man often you know is among the top you know movie monsters of all time sort of thing didn't remember i don't know if i i mean i'd seen it when it's the hands over the eyes with the eyeballs but scarier to me was the just that the figure itself that misshapen disgusting bulbous whatever sickly thing with the slits in the face Well, it it kind of reminds me of, um, there was a book, I don't know when it came out, but we had a copy when I was a kid, you know, and you always think of fairies of like Tinkerbell or something like pretty little. These were not pretty fairies. No. And like there's, there's this sort of whole like side, like it kind of reminds me of the drawings from the like 1970s Lord of the Rings, the cartoon versions that are kind of like where it's fantasy, but things are like brown and yeah gross and you know not necessarily somewhat pretty. organic yeah and yeah like sort of, of the earth and of that sort of thing viney and slimy yeah and <laughs> <laughs> muddy muddy yeah, yeah like yeah like they were insects that turned into like weird yeah. people shaped things you know with i don't know it's it's interesting it's a, it's a different way to look at at fantasy that's not so you know, sparkly and the fawn is all covered with moss and stuff like that. I love, I love the sort of when she comes across at the very beginning, um, she finds like a stone eye and then then she goes and she, um, finds this sort of, I don't know what you call them, like a stone guardian or something, guardian or something something like that in the woods that's missing that eye. And so she puts it in place and that's sort of what, but it's, it's the image of a, of a fawn. Is that what awakens the fawn's first visitation? Yeah. And the little, the insect starts following her at that point, you know? So, but I love that sort of idea of these like magical places in, in the wood. It's a Mm -hmm. really cool, like fern forest, you know, with the giant Mm -hmm. ferns and the tall trees. And, um, you know, it's, I think it's more Celtic, you know, because the Celts sort of were in that part of Spain, Segovia, that that sort of area. Well, the statue that you're talking about that seems like a very yeah. Celtic yeah, it's very style Celtic, um, yeah. statuary. You know, and labyrinths and Carved the sort stone, of stone circles, spirals, and stuff like yeah. that. It's I don't know. I like that sort of stuff too. The sort of spirals and and I don't know. Well, I really need to go back and see the Devil's Backbone. Mm-hmm. Because he also says that this is kind of an informal sequel in a way because it it, it can, carries over some of the same thematic elements. Yeah. But I don't know the other film enough to know yeah. what he's talking about. <laughs> so, yeah, we'll need to finish that. It's been a long time I since really I've seen that one. I really feel like I haven't... That one also has... ...seen a lot of his major works. It has, like... There's, like, unexploded bombs in the courtyard. Is that what Gosh, it is? I don't Something remember. like that, Yeah. Yeah. And um Remnants of War again, I, you know. We've never seen we still haven't seen The Shape of Water. Yeah. And I know you were kind of uneasy about seeing it in the movie theater cuz you didn't want us you didn't like the idea of 
water, have, submergence in water and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, I have, you had I have kind of fear a, of deep water. Yeah, yeah, it's one of my things. And I was like, so. oh, but we really want to see this. Heights and deep water, so, you know. And, so, and the eternal abyss. <laughs> so we have some more blind spots <laughs> yeah. related to Guillermo del Toro's career mm-hmm. that we need to fill in at some point. If you think you can manage the shape of water at, at home on DVD, yeah. where you can get up in pace if you, yeah, if if you I feel need to. Uh, <laughs> like there's too much water <laughs> or, or whatever, whatever else is going on. Yeah, so the, the film um, won a lot of awards around the mm-hmm. world and... Uh, what what? I don't even know what. I, yeah, it didn't win best foreign film in the Oscars, but it won. Um, some it was other, nominated two or three there, others. It? Oh, it was yeah. nominated in a yeah. bunch of categories. Yeah, but it's it's truly. I think you actually said this in your post the other day. Yeah. A modern classic. Yeah, I mean it's already kind of renowned. I think it. Um, was sort of instantaneous that mm-hmm. way. You know, it was just always such a powerful film and it had so much to say about so many things about violence about war about innocence about you know it's so confident and richly yeah. developed like it's so full like the yeah. world of this story has no bounds it yeah. you know what i mean like some like you think of a, a great work of literature or something yeah. like that it's completely fully imagined and realized and um intricate and all of a piece uh, metaphorically, symbolically, thematically, yeah, and all of that imagery and mythology. It has its own yeah, mythology. It does, yeah. Well, I just stories within stories within stories, right? Because she is not actually Ophelia; she's Princess Moana. And there's the storybook that gives her tells her what to do, where the pages fill in, and you see the illustrations take shape as you know, telling her what is going she needs to do next, and. So it's stories within stories, mirror kind of stuff. (laughs) You know, I, I don't, that time, that time frame and I I don't know why that particular thing in Spain is, is of particular interest to me. I mean, like I, I know a, a little bit more about the sort of rise of, fascism in Spain than I do of even Italy or, or Germany, I really don't. you know? Well, and that's the thing is like, there's some like holes in my historical understanding of how it was like, you know, for Germany, like that's like supposed to be more well-known. We're supposed to know how things, but I don't have any full understanding of what that looked like on a, you know, like what it meant to go through world war one and then to have the restriction, you know, all that, that sort of like rise of fascism in the in the you know mm-hmm. you know from the from the twenties up till the you know I mean essentially 70s? In the seventies <laughs> yeah in in Italy it went on for a really long time you know like what what led to that and why it you know it's mm-hmm. funny in my architectural history thing we're studying a little bit about how um, fascism used uh, modern architecture as like a, a you know, enforcing their power and that sort of thing in Italy, which I think is very interesting, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, But I don't know. And the... I don't know. It's it's interesting to look at... at I, I don't know much about the actual history, but I've seen, like, the effects in art and culture and, mm-hmm. and what's come out of that. And 
I don't know. It makes me want to know more about what led to that, you know, and and it makes me wonder if we're experiencing similar flows of energy now. You know, some sometimes it feels that way that in the U.S. that we're moving towards a more. And I'm fascinated you know, along those lines with the art and literature that yeah. comes out of that, yeah. that sort of um, well, like you know, Guernica and you yeah. know, but like you mentioned Lorca, and I don't. I've never read any Lorca, yeah. so th- I'm curious to kind of fill in some of those gaps yeah. too, and see what other how other how artists worked under protest and what yeah. they were able to communicate, and 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 of course this isn't actually a, a, yeah. a film created under <laughs> yeah. fascism under Franco, but so you have stories set during yeah. that time, and you also have the 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 people who were working. What's fascinating is so like you know the Bauhaus, which actually was sort of the one of the major growth of the modern movement in mm-hmm. architecture, um, essentially it was forced out of Germany when Hitler's, you know, when the Nazis came to power, essentially they had to all move to the U S but it's, and then it's so weird to me that, that the, you know, people that are part of the same sort of political ideology, like the Italians at the time would have taken that same architecture, that same sort of international <clears throat> style developed mm-hmm. by the Bauhaus and use it to promote their, cause the Germans kicked them out because they thought it, it was too dem- democratic, you mm-hmm. know, it was too, they wanted more traditional things, which were, but the you know, Italians and, and were like, yeah. Hey, we can use this. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, well, I'm sorry. I, I don't want to go on too much about architecture. But I think it's fascinating is that coming out of World War One, there was all this like optimism, not just in architecture, but in all sorts of things. And mm-hmm. so there was this idea that we could build a new society using architecture and art and, yeah. and that th- there's a great democrat democratizing force that there could be like sort of a new utopia created by these things. And then, you know, those same sort of forces you know, turned into the sort of fascist wave that, or, you know, caused that backlash, that sort of traditionalist backlash Mm -hmm. that, um, anyway, that, that brought about World War II. And then like all the optimism and everything that came out of between, you know, after World War I sort of crushed and turned into, you know, and that's where, you know, postmodernism happens, you know, in architecture and art and, and everything like that, which is, you know, art can't save us, you know, everything's terrible, kind of like, let's deconstruct everything, you know, sort of. Although in America, we had the opposite effect after World War II. We were like, yeah, hope and stuff. (laughs) 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 Until, you know, Vietnam, so. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, I don't know how I got off on that, but... um, because you're interested in architecture and, and, and art and, and art, you're a well-rounded woman <laughs> and the societies, all the societal forces that happened in, yeah. in Western Europe at, at that, you know, particular very eventful century that we had just, just happened <laughs> just happened a while ago. Yeah. Any final thoughts? On Pan's Labyrinth? Yes. No, just really what I said before about how I really want to go back and sort of be a completist and fill in the gaps for Guillermo Mm -hmm. Guillermo del Toro because I love this movie so much. Have you seen the Hellboys, either of them? No, I haven't. They're very good. Particularly the Golden Army. So he tends to sort of vacillate in between, you know, 
smaller mm-hmm. personal pieces like Pan's Labyrinth and then larger sort of Hollywood things. So Pacific Rim is the name of I the monster. I have seen monster. Pacific Rim okay, and I enjoyed it. That's the monster movie. Yeah, I liked it. And I guess I haven't seen, that was his last film was the second, the sequel to Pacific oh. Rim, which I don't, I don't know anything I about. So totally missed that there was a sequel. <laughs> I mean, I guess I vaguely knew there was a sequel, yeah. but there was nothing about the first one that made me feel like I needed to see a sequel. Yeah. Five years later. Yeah. Yeah. So and he's his next movie. I don't know if it's a Disney tie-in, but he's making a Pinocchio. Is what he's making. So, huh. which if it's Disney tied in, which probably it is, you know. Well, you know how Ophelia is actually Princess Moana. I told yeah, you that. That's right. Thank God yeah. Disney didn't make this version of Moana because <laughs> I don't know how that would play in that's the suburbs. True. <laughs> the other thing that I think is funny is. Hey, wouldn't this be a great Broadway musical? Yeah. Pan's Labyrinth, the musical. Yeah. With fascism <laughs> and terrifying, the pale man. No? No. No. I don't, okay. I, watch, well, he does have jazz hands with eyes <laughs> in the middle. <laughs> okay. That's brilliant. Well, the other thing is, is that, and he always has this thing where he's got things in production. Um, so on his IMDb page, it says that he's got in, um, in the works uh, a remake of Nightmare Alley. Which oh. I've not seen, but... Oh, I saw him announce that on Instagram. Yeah, but he he's like one of those directors that like, yeah, I'm working on that. And then well, there's... <laughs> so, final thought, I think, is yes. like, by God, did you... In 2007, he was developing a sequel to Pan's Labyrinth. Yeah. And then... Nothing happened. Dropped yeah. it to make Hellboy. Yeah. One of them, whichever Hellboy The Golden Army, on. yeah. And um, what the hell would the sequel to Pan's Labyrinth be? I don't know. I'm curious, but I also don't need that to happen. (laughs) But if he's doing it himself, obviously I know it will be of the same sort of rich world. So I wonder if this is material that he'll ever come back to. Yeah. He's he's got many, many more films in him, I think, and so yeah. I could see him going back to this world, but maybe he feels satisfied. You know, I wish that he would do is the um, comic book fables would love to see Hmm. what he would do with that source material yeah it's like appropriately dark and violent and also fairy tale related and i just think that like if anyone working could make a a and i think it would almost have to so he would have to go into tv which i don't think he's shown any interest in doing but like i think that he's the only one that i could think of that would be able to handle the sort of i can see that you know but I want to. I know that he does well when he takes uh, like a comic book property yeah. and he does his thing with it. But I also just think like he has such a rich and unique voice and vision that I want to see more of yeah. what's coming up from the dark recesses of his mind and body. Yeah. You know, because it's just <laughs> like this is completely and wholly original, yeah. and um, and well, that's and why not it's so special. Of that we yeah. oh, we need more original because. Unfortunately, we're on we're in the land of like let's do, let's do remakes of Spider Man eight hundred times or whatever. So, I don't want him to do a, a Spider Man film, a Lego Spider Man or something like that. I don't know. No. <laughs> All right. Well, I did. You have any final thoughts? I I feel like we've we've had our time. I, with to this. me, just that. Particular, I mean, like, because it's so difficult to watch, it really feels like a journey. And then there's just this magical moment of sort of like hope and release. And 
and sadness and terribleness and I don't know, there's something uniquely human about the way that things that that you know this thing happened to this one girl but the revolution goes on and life goes on and you know there the, things will continue to be hard you know but for her that 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 journey is done i don't know i i to me it's it's one of the more powerful things that i've seen which to me is why mm-hmm. it's so classic you know I'm really kind of upset with myself for having left it hanging unfinished for so many years. I think I felt a vague dread because I remembered how difficult it was, like how hard the subject matter was. But I feel bad that I left Ophelia in this in-between state in my own imagination, (laughs) not knowing how the rest of her story played out. But So now I'm glad that because of this show and your pick this week, we finally, I finally got to go and see it in, yeah. in its full and complete story, which has lots of things to think about yeah. and debate about. <laughs> well, and that's, that's what makes it so, so wonderful. There's so many films that I see that are throwaway yeah. and like, I don't feel the need to really think about it or process it afterwards. And this one needs a lot of, I mean, it just gets richer the more you think about mm-hmm. it. I think. Well, and interestingly, I had almost forgotten that we watched this because last night we saw Parasite, um, which also requires lots of thought. It and, does. I wonder and, if we should do a, something on that. Maybe. I don't know. So anyway, if you haven't seen Parasite, it's out in theaters now. Highly recommended. Fantastic film. And maybe we'll think about it. It's one of it. the best films I've seen this year. If not the best film, it's Bong Joon-ho's Parasite. You're probably reading about it everywhere. Yeah. It's amazing. It, it is another film that you cannot predict where it goes. Yeah. And it's truly a termite film in the, in the Manny Farber, mm. uh, the critic Manny Farmer termite film sort of thing. It is a film that eats its eats itself. Yeah. <laughs> I mean that burrows that burrows and burrows and burrows and creates something altogether strange and terrible. Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> Should I choose something that's strange and terrible next time? I don't know. I'm not sure where we're going, but I, I do know. know that next episode of Shut Up and Watch This is my pick. Yes. And I can't tell you what it is, so you can't prepare for it. We'll announce it when we have it. So thanks again for listening and uh, go and check out Pan's Labyrinth again, especially if you have the opportunity to check out the Criterion uh, Blu-ray is spectacular, beautiful, just as good as seeing it in the film in the movie theater. Just as long as you turn your lights out. Turn your lights out. All right. Thanks a lot. See you next time. See ya. Bye.